Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very honored, very pleased to uh, have on the podcast Lisa Feldman Barrett. Lisa is Distinguished Professor of Psychology and Director of Interdisciplinary Effective Science Laboratory at Northeastern University. She also holds research appointments at Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School, and Psychiatric Neuroimaging Program in the Department of Psychiatry. She is among the top uh, 0.1% of most cited scientists in the world, with over 275 peer-reviewed scientific papers across several fields. Uh, much of her research focuses on the human brain, uh, continual conversation with the human body in the world, um, how it regulates the body, creates mental events, such as episodes of emotion. She's received numerous awards for service to the field of psychology, including Distinguished Scientific Contribution Award in Psychology, the Award for Distinguished Service to Psychological Science, both from the American Psychological Association, and she also received the Mentor Award for Lifetime Achievement for Association for Psychological Science, along with a Guggenheim Fellowship. She's been on the editorial boards of psychology's most important journals, such as Psychological Science, Psychological Review, Current Directions in Psychological Science, and she was also the president of the Association for Psychological Science, APS, 2019 to 2020. She has written a handful of books. Uh, she is the author of How Emotions Are Made, Secret Life of the Brain, and Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. She's edited five scientific volumes, including third and fourth editions of the Handbook of Emotion. So as listeners can tell, she is uh, quite established in the field of psychology and neuroscience. And I was uh, very, very, very happy to have her on the podcast. I think I mentioned it somewhere that she's been referenced in other conversations at different points. Um, and so people will quote her work often. And I was very, very fortunate to to get her on and ask her all of my questions that I wanted about emotions. And, and the, the conversation was uh, just an absolute delight. We start by talking about what emotions are and how they're different from affect and feelings. She lays out her social construction model of emotions. And in that part of it, we spend some time talking about interoceptive network, uh, exteroception, allostasis, homeostasis, etc. We also talk about predictive processing, the Bayesian brain, emotions as heuristics, the nature of reality, discrete emotions, emotions and relationships, and uh, many more uh, topics. Uh, again, this was a big honor. Uh, I had wanting been wanting to have a conversation with uh, with Lisa for for quite some time, really, since I started the podcast, and I was uh, just very very pleased to to have the conversation. She was super nice, super generous. Obviously, she's quite brilliant, and um, I think we had a really good conversation about philosophy of science. We talked about emotional theory, and um, hopefully, uh, this leaves people. Uh, wanted to go get her work and read her papers, but also to really think about how we conceptualize emotions, uh, what they're doing in, the, in our brain, in our body, and the best ways that we can kind of interact with them in the world. As always, uh, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com, also on YouTube. So get over to those places, subscribe, follow, like, share widely with your friends. Of course, you can contribute as well. It's much appreciated. And uh, now I bring you. Lisa Feldman Barrett. I'm here with the uh, one and only Lisa Feldman Barrett. Uh, Lisa, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's uh, it's a big honor, big privilege. 
It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. Uh, of course. Um, you have uh, done a lot of uh, uh, work on uh, emotions and researching emotions. Uh, you have a handful of, uh, of books out. You have uh, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. Uh, this, what is this? 20, 2016, I think, right? Is that right? 2017. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's fantastic. And you have the more recent uh, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, uh, which is kind of coffee table size, but uh, filled with uh, so much good stuff in here. I like how at the end it's like, uh, you know, all of the notes are online because it would take too many, too many pages to put all of the footnotes and references. So that's always great for people to look up. And I'll just say something about that book. So many people that are in um, social sciences are terrible science communicators. Um, and many times people will say, well, you know, if this doesn't, if this isn't right and this isn't, you know, if this is inaccurate, you know, where can I just find like for the lay person kind of a very good book that's like good science, but like explains things well. And I usually point them to that book because it, Aww, it really, so it really does. Uh, I think we need more books like that, more people uh, writing that way, not just writing for academics. So I think that's very, very important. I even have, I even have a, an old uh, third edition of a handbook of emotions <laughs> as well. So yeah, <laughs> I was telling you before I got on, I, I've, I've read your papers in grad school and um, a lot of your work for a while. So I'm, uh, I'm excited to talk about uh, emotions. So you have a kind of a, a certain model that you use, uh, social construction of uh, emotions, which we'll get into. I thought about the conversation and how I wanted to organize it. And I thought it would be good to kind of set the table uh, first for listeners to kind of understand what we're talking about, what we mean. Now, typically, I usually don't like uh, conversations that kind of get bogged down in definitions. And many times people get bogged down in defining emotions and things like that. So I will defer to which terms you use, uh, et cetera. So I guess the first question is, what are emotions? Um, where, where do they I guess come from? And how are they different from feelings and, and affect? Well, I think, um, you know, scientists have been arguing about the definition of emotion for 150 years or, or more. So I think it depends on who you ask. Mm -hmm. um, I think the standard kind of scientific belief for many years was the idea that um, you're born with some number of innate circuits like that are hardwired into your brain at birth. And, um, uh, you know, anger, one for anger, one for sad, one for fear one for happiness and so on. You know, there's some number. They're universal. When they're triggered by something in the world, they, um, a circuit will cause you to have a particular feeling, a particular facial expression, a particular change in your body, um, and that these will be universally experienced and expressed and recognized. Mm. That's the, the kind of standard story. Mm. Um, the problem, I think for me, what was that there's no evidence <laughs> that, uh, for, for, um, instead what you see is, is great diversity, actually great diversity. in in um, even in, in an emotion like anger, what people experience, what they do with their faces, what happens to their body, where, um, you know, which assemblies of neurons seem to be involved. 
what it's not a random like mishmash of stuff. It's it's very structured, but it's very individualized. So, for example, you know, evidence suggests that people on average, when they're angry, they scowl, which is supposed to be the universal expression of anger, you know, 30 percent of the time, 35 percent of the time, which is more than chance. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it means is that 65 percent of the time when people are angry, they're doing something else with their face. Mm. And if you just used a scowl, you'd be wrong mm. most of the time mm. um, or much of the time anyways. And actually half the time when people scowl, they're not angry. They're feeling something else, um, either not an emotion at all or they're feeling frustrated or they're feeling um, they're concentrating really hard or, you know, they're they're experiencing gas or something. Right. So, um, you know, we took a dare different approach. and. Um, instead of starting with emotion categories or psychological categories that are part of common sense, part of what we experience every day, we, and then go looking for the physical basis of those in the brain and the body, we started in the other direction. We said, okay, well, how did a brain evolve? What's it good for? What's it, what's like, why, why do we even have brains? They're super expensive, um, you know, structures to have and maintain. What are they good for? And given that we have brains like that and bodies that are structured and work the way they do. What are those brains and bodies capable of experiencing and how is that experience structured and so on? And so we came to a really different view and the view goes something like this, which will answer your question about like, how do you define these things? Your brain's most important job is not to think. It's not rationality. It's not to feel anything. It's not even to sense the world. The brain's most important job is regulating the body. You have lots and lots and lots going on inside your body right now. So do I, so do our listeners. Mostly we're unaware of it, but it's there and it's happening all the time. And as the brain is regulating the body, the body is sending sensory signals back to the brain continuously. And we don't experience those usually unless there's something wrong. Mm. Like you have a stomach ache or, you know, appendicitis or something like that. Most of the time, and even then, we're not experiencing them very specifically. Uh, the way we see, for example, when we're, we're seeing and hearing is very, very clear and, and distinct. So, you know, something I like to say is, you know, if vision is like high definition television, then your ability to experience what's going on in your body is kind of like a 1950s black and white television with a bad antenna in the rain. You know, we're just like not wired to experience all of the things going on inside our own bodies. But the brain, your brain makes itself aware of all that drama as affective feelings, these sort of simple feelings, you know, you might call them mood, for example. So you feel worked up, you feel calm, you feel comfortable, you feel uncomfortable, you feel pleasant, you feel unpleasant. Um, These are simple feelings that are very related to the state of your body. And they're not emotions. They they are with you all the time. Your brain's always regulating your body. Your body's always sending sensory signals back to your brain. So your brain is always experiencing affect, these like or mood, these sort of simple feelings. And it doesn't really matter whether you're emotional or not, or whether you're paying attention to them or not, they're kind of there. Um, But sometimes they get pretty intense. 
like when there's a big change in the world or a big change inside your own body. And those are the moments when your brain, your brain's always trying to figure out like what's, what is it, what's going on inside the body and what does it mean in relation to the world? And sometimes the story it comes up with is, is what creates an emotion. So emotions are moments of meaning making. They're, they're moments where um, your, what's going on inside your body is related to what's going on outside in the world in a particular way. So moments are, emotions are moments of meaning making. They're how you understand what's going on inside you in relation to what's going on outside. Would you say that with emotions that what we care about is a person's subjective experience of something, right? So we're all having subjective experiences about something internally or, or external to us. But would you agree that emotions are, I think this is sort of the standard. I don't think it disagrees with kind of what you're saying, but that emotions have, um, you're talking about meaning making, but are there, is it a conglomerate of um, cognition? Uh, affect, uh, behavior, sensation, would you still say that those things are subsumed under what we call emotion or do you see them as yeah, separate? So I, I, I'm going to get real, I'll have to get a little technical with you. So, yeah. um, so what I would say is that um, sometimes people understand what I'm saying as, as if it's just a theory of feeling mm-hmm. of experience, which is wrong actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way the brain works makes distinctions like cognition, emotion, perception, sensation, kind of meaningless. Mm. Like those are human, those are Western categories Mm -hmm. that we've come up with to make sense of things, but your brain doesn't have cognitive parts and emotional parts and sensory parts and whatever, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, even sensory motor distinctions, you'd be really hard pressed to actually, Mm. um, make any kind of biological claim uh, that there's something, there are firm boundaries in the brain uh, biologically or chemically or or what have you for something that's motor versus something that's sensory. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even things like vision versus audition, you know, like hearing versus seeing. It's not really clear. I mean, we certainly talk about visual cortex and auditory cortex, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. um, that's more of a like, short form because it turns out that the parts of the brain that we call visual cortex actually process a lot of different kinds of signals and they're not all from the retinas of your eyes. Um, so what I would say is the following. Um, when the brain is making meaning, what does that mean? Like, what is it really doing? Mm-hmm. And in order to understand what I'm about to say, I, I kind of have to take a step or two back and, and start with something really basic, which is that you're Brain is always receiving sensory signals from the sensory surfaces of your body. Mm-hmm. So you have retina in your each eye, you have a cochlea in each ear, you've got, you know, taste receptors on your taste buds, on your tongue, and so on and so forth. You also have sensory surfaces inside your body for that monitor oxygen and glucose and, you know, various electrolytes and things like that temperature and, you know, muscle stretch and things like that. And these signals are streaming to your brain constantly. And your brain has to kind of figure out what, um, what they mean. Mm. And the brain has a really 
your brain has a very tricky problem to solve. And here's the problem. It's actually stuck in a dark, silent box (laughs) called your skull. (laughs) So all it's receiving are these signals, which are the outcomes, the effect of some set of causes. But your brain actually doesn't have access to the causes. It only has access to the signals, which are the outcomes. So it has to guess what the causes are from the effects, from the outcomes. That is what philosophers call an inverse problem. So your brain has a massive, continuous, for your entire life, inverse problem it has to solve. And the way that it solves the inverse problem is by using the only information that it has, which is the past. It's pat the past experiences that are available in the wiring of the brain. Hmm. So what your brain does effectively, very colloquially, is it asks itself, well, okay, so so all this, all these signals are streaming in, and it asks itself, okay, what what is similar hmm. to the present that's happened in the past? Like The last time I was in a situation where I I had this ensemble of sensory signals, what did I do next? What did I see next? What did I hear next? What did I smell next? What did I think next? So it's like, what was similar in the past Mm -hmm. to the present? Now, it's not asking what are these signals? It's asking, what is this like? Mm -hmm. In psychology, a group of things which are similar to each other is a category. So what your brain is doing is it's generating categories all the time as guesses for what sensory signals mean. And the interesting thing, so that, you know, in psychology, we would call that a categories and categorization. That's cognition. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing about the, what the brain is doing is, so the brain is, is re-implementing, or we might say remembering past instances that are similar to the present. And of course, you don't experience yourself as remembering. You don't have that subjective experience, but you, but your brain is essentially reestablishing memories. It's reestablishing past experiences that are similar to the present in some way. Hmm. And the really mind blowing thing about it is that the brain's doing it in advance of the signals arriving. Hmm. So it's anticipating, it's constructing categories to anticipate signals that are going to arrive in a, in a second from now, in a moment from now. It's not literally a second, but like, mm-hmm. you know, soon. And in, those are usually called predictions. They're called prediction signals. Mm-hmm. So the brain is predicting about what's going to, what it needs to do next and what it, and what it's going to, what it's going to sense next. Mm-hmm. And so you could call that remembering. You could call it categorizing. You could call it perceiving. I mean, like, you know, the words don't, the words don't, those meanings don't have any um, value in this way of understanding um, how a brain works. Hmm. And then the interesting thing about it is that all predictions begin as motor predictions. They begin as motor plans for changing the modifying what's going on inside your body because you know your brain's most important job is regulating your body so your brain so every prediction set of predictions every category starts with signals to modify the internal state of your body to support any movement that has to take place mm-hmm. 
And copies, literal copies of those signals become the sensory predictions that um, the brain is like literally changing the firing of its own neurons to anticipate sights and sounds and smells and feelings. And then it waits for those signals to either confirm uh, the, the prediction signals or, or to change them. Mm. It, and if it confirms them, then that's your spirit. Then your action takes place and that's your experience. Um, and if it doesn't, if the signals are different, then we have a special name for that in psychology. We call it learning. That's what learning is. Mm -hmm. So you can see here that first of all, the theory is about action. It's about cognition. It's about perception. Mm -hmm. It's about experience. It's about all of those things. But the principles, the hypotheses come from neuroanatomy, you know, evolutionary biology, signal processing, electrical signal processing. So the hypotheses come from a wide range of disciplines to give us a very unintuitive picture of how a brain works um, that really breaks down the old distinctions between cognition, emotion, sensation, and so on. Mm. As, as listeners can hear, you explain things very, very well. Um, it, it sounds like, I, if, I, if I'm correct, much of the things you were talking about there were the interoceptive network and the exteroceptive uh, network of this idea of what is your body signaling of what's happening in your body and then what's your body telling you about what's happening outside your body. You see that as critical for origins of how things come up to the brain to tell us what's going on in terms of of, of, of things internally or externally, where do we see the role of, you know, allostasis and homeostasis? These are two things that are really important for our body and how we're doing things. How do you see those as essential for this kind of interoceptive network to try and tell us how we're perceiving or remembering or, or learning or things like that? Well, I think that, um, first of all, you know, um, the brain's most important job, you know, just to be like, repeat this mm -hmm. ad nauseum, mm -hmm. the brain's most important job is regulating the body. Mm -hmm. And the way that it does it is predictively, which we just established. And the fancy name for that is called allostasis. So allostasis is the brain's anticipating the needs of the body in the next moment and attempting to meet those needs before they arise. So an example would be if, when you're sitting down, you go to stand up. If your brain waits, Till you stand in order to raise your blood pressure so that oxygen can get to your brain, you'll faint, right? So it starts to raise your blood pressure as you start to stand, right? Or another example is like, uh, are you a baseball fan? Do you like mm -hmm. baseball? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Baseball is like actually every sport where teams are involved in a ball um, or a puck or whatever mm -hmm. are all great examples of allostasis and prediction in particular, because, um, you know, think about what a batter has to do. Batter has to anticipate the ball. Actually, a batter starts to swing at a ball before the batter can actually see the ball. Mm -hmm. So his brain first has to make a prediction about what needs to happen inside his body so that 
uh, he can move his limbs in the appropriate way so that he can swing at something he can't yet see in order to be able to hit it. Mm-hmm. If he waits till he sees the ball be released from the pitcher's hand, he has no hope of hitting it. There's just <laughs> physically not enough time for him to do so in a, you know, in a professional, on a professional diamond in a professional, you know, with a pitcher who can, can really pitch. Mm-hmm. So um, allostasis is about, it's not about attempting to spend less uh, metabolically speaking, it's about being efficient Mm. and you can be efficient when you're sleeping and you can be efficient when you're running uh, a mile, Mm. you know, in fact, that's what happens when we exercise, right? So if you, if you're doing the same thing over and over and over, like you, you know, play tennis over and over and over and over, you get faster Mm -hmm. and you get better because what's happening is your brain is predicting better and you get more efficient. Mm. And you actually burn fewer calories, the more efficient you are, That's true. <laughs> which is why people do interval training, mm-hmm. right? Because they, because then when somebody's calling out to you an interval change, you can't predict it. Mm-hmm. And so your brain can't adapt to it. And so you, you know, you're burning more calories, you're getting a better workout. So mm. the, the idea here is that allostasis is it's to predict and and correct is much more metabolically efficient than to react. Mm. So your brain's always going to be attempting to learn and it's always attempting to, to predict better. And that is because allostasis is much more efficient that way. Mm. Um, homeostasis is a bit of a different animal. It's um, you're not um, predicting, you're reacting. And what you're trying to do is get back to a set point. So some things work by homeostasis, like temperature, for example, you you can't go outside a range. If you do, your proteins will denature and you'll die. Right. Mm -hmm. Or it, um, uh, and so, or that's on one end and I don't know what happens to you when you freeze, but you know, basically you can't go outside a certain, uh, you know, hypothermia, Mm -hmm. you can't go outside a certain range. So so temperature works homeostatically. There's a change. You react to the change. You adjust um, back to a, a, you know, a set point. But in allostasis, there is no set point. It's really, are you, is, is everything as efficient as it could be? Um, yes or no. And so the attempt is to, to maintain efficiency. It's not really about, sometimes people talk about it as um, maintaining stability in change. Hmm. You know, like you're trying to keep everything be efficient. Mm. So, for example, when mm, you um, have a big surge of cortisol, sometimes people think, well, actually, most people think cortisol is a stress hormone, but actually, it's a hormone that your brain directs when it to when it's predicting that you will need a big beta, metabolic outlay mm. because. Cortisol is really about glucose metabolism. Mm. That's what, that's why it's important. So it makes it easier for your cells to use glucose when they need it because your brain is predicting a big metabolic outlay. So that's all stress really is, is a big metabolic outlay that your brain is predicting allostatically. Um, but uh, what can happen is that if your brain predicts badly, then your cell, then you're flushed with cortisol a lot of the time, and then it loses its predictive, um, you know, uh, 
potency and your, your cells get too used to it and then they don't respond to it. And then that causes all kinds of problems. So allostasis is really at the basis of all physical and mental health. Mm. It, it's about, it's, it, you know, that's your brain's sort of most important job. And the, the circuitry in your brain that is sort of, it's not dedicated to allostasis, but it, there, there are parts of, there are large swaths of the brain, which um, they're in, that are important for regulating or ma- maintaining allostasis. And those, um, that circuitry does more though than just that, because, you know, allostatic predictions, if you will, are the, are part of the larger predictive machinery. So when your brain makes a set of allostatic predictions, the copies of those become uh, like literally the literal copies of those signals are your, the sensory predictions that will eventually become your experience. Hmm. You've been mentioning uh, at many points here, this idea of the brain predicting. And I want to just kind of ask, uh, you know, I guess sort of um, specifically here, uh, you know, Bayesian brain models and predictive processing as is put out by, you know, Andy Clark and Carl Friston. And he, I know, Carl has his free energy principle as, as well with that. But I've talked to both of those guys on, on the podcast and they're wonderful, wonderful people. And they have a whole kind of model of how, you know, this they kind of flush all this stuff out of, of predictive processing, the model and all these things. And is, is that something that you're, you're borrowing from uh, in terms of where the literature is in neuroscience or, or are you full blown like, yes, I, I also am in that camp too, or you're just taking pieces of it? How do you kind of see that world of, of, of research and literature with, with this stuff? Well, I would say that, um, first of all, I have great respect for both of them. Um, I, and Andy Clark, I actually, um, he already knows this, so I'll just, <sighs> but I actually reviewed his paper. Mm. Um, the, 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 he wrote a paper. Body in, mind uh, one? The BBS, uh, Behavioral and Brain Sciences paper. Um, uh, it was like a big predictive processing paper, I think in 2013, maybe it came out. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, anyways, I mean, I reviewed that paper mm-hmm. and I thought it was a brilliant, brilliant paper. And in general, I would say, um, I love Andy's writing and I think I blurbed his latest book too. I mean, mm-hmm. I just think he's, um, I just think he's brilliant mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. Um, He's, he's got a very lyrical way of describing predictive processing. Yeah. And I would say about Carl, I mean, Carl's conquering the world, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I can't, honestly, I can't say I understand any of the math. Like yeah. I just, Nobody I can. can't Nobody understand. Can. I, you know, yeah. <laughs> but I will say the following that, you know, when I was working out, so my entry into predictive processing, I think is, is sort of in parallel to those guys. Mm. It's mm. not, I mean, m- I wouldn't say that it was stimulated by them, mm. but I certainly came across their work like very quickly. Right. Sure. And, and for example, with Carl, who was like just the nicest, most generous person to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I emailed him out of the blue and <laughs> said, you know, I'm, I was working with anatomical models and kind of like realizing that um, there's, there's this work by Helen 
Barbas, who's an anatomist, and I was um, looking at her work, which I was incorpor- I was sort of integrating that work with a paper that Carl and some of his uh, collaborators had published, I think, in 2010, maybe, or 2012. Mm. And I noticed something about um, having to do with allostasis and interoception. And I sort of put everything together and came up with this hypothesis that as far as I know, nobody else had had at that point. And so I emailed them out of the blue and I said, you don't know me. I've read many of your papers. I have a question. And I just laid it out. And I said, does this, do you, basically it puts, I mean, just the long story short, it's in the book, but the long story short is it puts the circuitry for allostasis and interoception and allostasis at the top of the predictive hierarchy in the brain, meaning the, the regions of the brain that are most important for allostasis and interoception, which is the you know, brain's modeling of the sensory state of the body in response to allostasis, um, it, is at the heart of everything you do, everything you think, everything you feel, everything you see and hear. I mean, that's the way it looked to me. Mm. So I, I emailed him and I outlined the hypothesis anatomically. And I said, do you, what do you think about this? Mm. this is, am I like nuts? <laughs> and he answered, this is great. You should publish this right now. Wow. And I was actually working on how emotions are made. And I was like, I don't have time to remember right now. <laughs> I'm working on a book. But I said, okay. And so I wrote the paper with a good colleague of mine while I was working on the book, submitted it to Nature Reviews Neuroscience. I think Carl was probably one of the reviewers mm. and it was published. Mm. Um, it was very quick, very efficient. And he, I mean, he didn't know me at all, but he gave me the confidence mm. to, mm. Um, you know, to really um, put that idea out there. And so what I would say, I guess, is that I think that my views are maybe more anatomically sus- specific maybe than Andy's views. Mm. And I would say about Carl, I'm not so concerned with free energy. I barely passed, you know, high school physics. so <laughs> I. But what I will say is I'm more, I think for me, until recently, I would say I sort of stopped at biology. Like biochemistry for me was the, as low as I was willing to go, you know, um, in terms of explanatory constraints. Mm. Um, So I don't, I can't pretend to understand the laws of physics. And, but I will say that at a gist level, like I have been writing actually recently, I've been working on a, on, on um, this sort of larger, what, what the theory of constructed emotion um, has to say really, not just about the mind, but also about reality and the nature of reality. So, so getting a little philosophical, um, that's led me to read work actually by Carlo Rovelli mm-hmm. on um, the relational view of quantum mechanics. And again, I can't, I he's actually, you know, I'm not reading the super technical uh, equations and things, but there's a little bit of math there. And so I think what I've gleaned from that and from other physics, you know, work in physics on relational um, quantum mechanics is that um, Carl's use of 
like notions from information theory actually are very useful. Yeah. So, but, you know, I guess what I would say is um, I, my own um, orientation is usually to start with evolutionary biology, anatomy, you know, really things at the biological level, um, and then build from there. And so, of course, that brings me into the orbit of Carl's work occasionally. And although it's really hard to keep up, I mean, the guys published like 100 million papers. Yeah, yes, so, yes. <laughs> um, and and similarly with with Andy and there are a whole bunch of other people, actually. Mm -hmm. So, the people, oh, sure. you know, there's a huge community of oh, yeah. work, um, uh, you know, of people who are doing really brilliant, brilliant work mm. um, on. Um, predictive processing. And, um, I, I would say, you know, like Andre Bastos is, you know, we just sent one of our post, one of our graduate students to him to, to do a postdoc and, hmm. um, um, you know, um, Giovanni Pizzullo, like there are a lot of guys who are doing and, and women too, but like guys in the generic sense, mm -hmm. a lot of people doing really great work. Um, I would say from a predictive processing standpoint, and um, uh, I intersect with a lot of them, but my particular anchor, I think, is more like uh, the brain, the development, and the anatomy of the brain. Mm, yeah, no, that's great. I, th I think I can, I can definitely see a lot of the overlap, and I always wonder. I know people are referencing each other. I think Andy referenced you in his book, and you've done it with it in your book. So it's nice to see people kind of, you know, weaving in and out of their worlds. You're, you're saying about emotions is interesting. I'm curious about everything that you, you've said, you know, tracks, I mean, I've read your books and papers and stuff and hearing you explain it now. I guess the question I have is, mm, there's a few follow-ups, I guess, but the main question I have is, is, yes, the idea of emotions is a... Mm, it's a human creation. It's a human heuristic. It's much like if you say things in reality about like, you know, the color red, you know, what is it? We don't really see colors. You know, they're kind of like in other people's, you know, other animals see things differently. And because we have certain kinds of uh, rods and cones in our, in our brain, but like, is it wrong? Maybe that's the wrong question, but is it harmful or is it detrimental if we have heuristics? Cause no one can explain the process just like you did. Right. And so while it is maybe more accurate to explain, um, interoceptive and, um, uh, networks, what the heuristic we use is we, we say, well, that's, you know, anger or that's fear or these are, is it, is it not accurate or is it in inadequate to, to say heuristics such as emotions or, you know, should we do away with that or because they're human creations or what do we do with your kind of your model? with how we understand emotion. Yeah, so you're asking me a really good question. It's a really philosophical question. I hate to use the P word. No, that's all right. Philosophy, so like don't, you know, for our listeners, I don't, love, I don't turn philosophy. off now, don't turn off, okay? It's, it's, don't worry, it's, I'm not going to get go full-blown philosophy no, on my, you. No, my, my listeners love philosophy, so it's okay. But, um, but here's what I would say. So let's take the color red, for example. Um. A traditional realist, somebody who believes that there's a, there's a reality out there separate from them that can be viewed objectively, they would say 
Red, an apple, a red apple is red. Like the apple is red. Like the redness is in the apple, right? And a, 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 an idealist <laughs> would say, no, red is all in your head. Okay, so the world is out there in the world, you know, and in, in separate from you or, you know, it's all in your head. That dichotomy has been around in philosophy for hundreds and hundreds of years. I think it's useless, actually, mm. because red, the experience of red, redness, is a property of the interaction between the signals coming from the apple that hit your retina um, and the signals in your brain. It's not a property of the apple. It's not a property of your brain. It's a property of the interaction of the signals in the world hitting your retina and the signals in your brain. It's like velocity is a, not a property of a moving object. It's a property of a moving object in relation to some other mm -hmm. object. Mm -hmm. So features and properties are relational. Reality is relational. It's real. But it's real in part by virtue of the signals in your brain. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is really hard for people to get their head around sometimes. And sometimes they'll, they take a, you know, a constructionist view. My view is not just social construction. It's also psychological construction, neural construction, construction, construction. Sometimes people take that to mean like idealism. Oh, you think every, you think it's all in people's heads. No, no, no. The brain's main job is to make, is to regulate the body in the world. Okay. As it moves around the world, mm -hmm. the brain's trying to make sense of signals in the body in relation to the world. It's all about the signals interacting out there, outside of you and the stuff that's happening inside of you, all the signals inside of you. They're interacting all the time. That's what produces reality. So why do we care? Well, it's, it's really important, actually. And in in, I could give you sort of scientific reasons why it's important, but there are practical reasons why it's important. Of course. Um, and that's actually what got me to write this book, the first book in some ways, mm. you know, because people would often ask me, why is it important that we have the wrong theory of emotion? Like, who cares? Does it really matter? And I'd be like, why are you asking me this question? You know, it's science. It's interesting, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, when I sat down and thought about it for five minutes, I realized, no, it does actually really matter. So I could, I'm going to give you a couple of examples. So um, here's one example. When you believe that an emotion is a real thing that you can detect in the world separate from you. So, of course, it is, any instance of emotion is real, but it's real by virtue of the fact that you're make, you're, it's, Part of its reality comes from you, from the signals in your brain and in your body. Why does it matter? Well, because if you think that you look at somebody else and you think that anger is, a, is, a, is something that's separate from you, first of all, your meaning making, and it's separate from that person, it's just something that happens to them, then it means that you think you can detect it objectively. You believe in the objectivity of your perception. Mm -hmm. And that gets people killed when they go to the hospital, for example. So there is a, there's a literature on, for example, women over the age of 65 being more likely to die from heart attacks than men because they go to the emergency room. They have particular physical sensations they're experiencing. 
they experience them as anxiety. The doctor in charge experiences that person as being anxious, like they think they're detecting anxiety mm-hmm. because they can't find you know, maybe anything wrong with the heart. And then they send the woman home and then she dies of a heart attack. That's documented in the literature. I also want to say that I personally know three people who lost their mothers that way. Mm. Mm. And, um, and actually, I have a friend uh, who is a neuroscientist. Um, his name is Jim Cohn. And he had a pot. I don't know that he has a podcast anymore, but he used to have a podcast called The Circle of Willis. Mm. And in this podcast, um, in I think 2018, Halloween, the Halloween, uh, you know, episode, he tells this story of how um, he was having um, what he was told were symptoms of anxiety. Hmm. Um, and, but he was feeling really uncomfortable and, uh, and the discomfort was getting worse and worse and worse. His distress was getting worse and worse and worse. But, you know, no cardiologist could find anything wrong with him. And so he laid down, went to have a nap. And then he remembered me telling him this story. Actually, he interviewed me on his podcast mm. where he asked me very much the same question that you just asked me. Mm. Um, why does it matter? Who cares? Um, I mean, you were nicer about how you asked. But that's really <laughs> the question, right? Who cares? So what? And, um, and so I told him this story. And so he remembered this story. He said, I heard your voice in my head. And so I got up and I took myself to the hospital, even though I knew I was going to feel a bit embarrassed and ashamed because there's nothing wrong with me and it's just anxiety. And um, sure enough, you know, he goes to the hospital, they do a whole workup on him. They can't find anything wrong with him. And this is the point at which they send people home mm-hmm. and they tried to send him home. And he said, you know, I just, I really want to see a cardiologist. I'm just like, the pain's getting worse. I'm feeling really uncomfortable. So. If it had been a woman, they would have just said goodbye. But no, he's a man. He said, no, 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 I want to see a cardiologist. Mm. They said, okay. He waits. Things get worse. Cardiologist walks into the room, like gets worse from his perspective. He's really uncomfortable. Cardiologist, as the cardiologist is walking into the room, he has a massive heart attack, Mm. which in medical, the medical circles, they call the widow maker. He had a, if he had not been literally in the hospital at that point, he would have died from a massive coronary mm. attack. This was, an, this was a, an episode that was not detected by any medical device or test. Mm. And they actually had to do a procedure on him without anesthesia to save his life. Wow. Right. So <clears throat> my point is that when you have physicians who believe that they are detecting objective states in you that really are constructed, they can make mistakes that can sometimes cost people their lives. And I'll give you another example. This is a less, a less serious example, but it's still not life and death, but it's still pretty serious. So when I was in my early 50s, um, I went to the doctor, a new doctor, new primary care physician. I was like super fatigued and uh, this guy was new because my old person had just like, my regular person had just retired. And, um, and I said, you know, I'm really, really tired. And he said, well, 
are you depressed? And I was like, no, I'm not depressed. I'm just really fatigued. I'm really tired. And he's like, well, are you stressed? And I'm like, I run a lab with 25 people I employ. Am I stressed? You know, sure, I'm stressed. But like, I'm not more stressed than I usually (laughs) am. It doesn't really account for the problem, right? And we kind of go, he goes, well, maybe you're depressed and you don't know it. And I'm like, listen, I don't really think this is depression. And then, you know, but so we kind of go through, anyways, he offers me some antidepressants. Would you like a prescription? And I'm like, no, I don't want a prescription. I, I, I want to understand why I'm so fatigued. Anyways, long story short, I'm, I get fed up and I'm like, okay, this, I'm obviously not going to see this guy again. And as I'm leaving, this nurse <laughs> comes up to me and she goes, honey, honey, are you maybe, are you going through menopause? And I'm like, I, I don't know. Am I? Like, I had never thought about it, right? Because nobody talks about menopause. It's like a secret thing that you're not supposed to talk about. Um, Although more people talk about it now. But anyways, long story short, I was going through menopause. Mm. And Mm. you know what? Uh, Sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, Mm -hmm. they're metabolic regulators. Mm. Actually, they evolved as metabolic regulators. Their role in in, um, the regulation of sex characteristics comes later in evolution. Okay. So, but what would have happened if I had taken Mm. um, the antidepressants? I can tell you what would have happened. What would have happened is it would have completely screwed up my metabolism more than it was already screwed up. I'm not going to go into all the details now, but it actually could have caused serious medical problems for me down the road uh, because I started to take a medication that by the way, antidepressants are, they, they change the serotonin concentrations um, uh, in, your, um, in your, the synapses of your neurons. And serotonin is also a metabolic regulator. Mm-hmm. So the thing is that when, um, you know, when people believe that their perceptions which are constructed, doesn't mean they're not real. They're real, Mm -hmm. but they're real by virtue of real physical signals in their brains, okay? When those, when you believe that you, when you have a naive realism that things exist out there in the world, actually objectively as you perceive them, you can make really serious mistakes. Um, Some of those mistakes can be physically harmful to you and sometimes they can be harmful to other people. Like I would say, Every kind of ism that exists, racism, sexism, is really about naive realism, believing that Mm -hmm. your perceptions reveal something to you that's objective and real in the world that has nothing to do with you. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just, there's many, many, many problems with with that. But I've just given you a couple of examples. Mm -hmm. I could... I could seriously go on mm-hmm. for like the rest of our conversation. <laughs> no, I think it's important. It's, it's, there's, there's a, a few things. So a footnote here. Um, I had a two hour podcast a while ago. It was a, it was a, I really enjoyed it. it was um, with uh, Susan Mattern. She wrote the book, The Slow Moon Climbs. I think that's right. And it's a, a history of menopause. And I, I found the book deeply fascinating. And it's a, she's absolutely lovely. And um, she was kind enough to, to talk with me for a couple hours about menopause and, and, um, and the history of it and you know, her ideas about it. And uh, I do think it is something that people should talk more about. Uh, so I think it is, it is important. 
I think the main thing, though, Xavier, that I want to point out is that you're always making sense of sensations. Mm-hmm. And those that making sense process is creates your experience of the world, of yourself in the world. And it's malleable. That's the important thing to understand. It's malleable. So that means that you have more control and also more responsibility for the for your experiences. And that, you know, there there's a whole sort of optimistic side to that, which is also really important. Yeah, I firmly agree. It's interesting how you're talking about reality and philosophy. It's interesting how we keep going back to philosophy and, and doing their homework. What it's interesting that um Hegel talks about this in response to Kant about, you know, his kind of, uh, his, his three meanings of objective and how he disagrees a little bit with Kant about basically natural kinds and their order. And the, the, the short version is, is that there's reality works in two different ways of sorts and how we categorize them. I had a great conversation with Stephen Holgate, who does this work on, on Hegel, um, where we, he talks about this, where it's like, yes, how do we understand what's, what's, there is a, a there, there that's outside in reality, but there's also a way in how we understand reality. Uh, you can obviously look to the philosophy of Merleau-Ponty, who, who wrote a fantastic book on phenomenology of perception and how we see things of objective, subjective, but also what the whole experience of that is of, of different perceptions. And he goes into great detail about things. So it's interesting how we have all of these concepts um, but really, it does take us back to, okay, neuroscience, but then also philosophy and the philosophy of science. I have a, a, a kind of a sort of a question, a topic I want to sort of land on here, which is there's a lot of research on um, distinct emotions. And something I've always been interested in is if I go anywhere around the world, now you might have some some, some contention with this, but there's, there's an experience of what somebody has of what we would say is, let's say fear. Um, isn't it possible that if somebody has a a subjective experience, so let's say somebody, um, there's an animal that's coming and charging at us, right? What I'm feeling inside, right? The heuristic I'm going to use is I feel afraid. Um, And what four other people feel are probably going to be somewhat similar, right? And isn't it true that we can have different expressions or we can can kind of show that differently, right? So I'm with you on the Ekman stuff, right, about the facial expressions. I think people put too much into it initially and stuff. We can have different kinds of expressions. Does it matter, though, that there is a similar process that's going on in, in, in humans' bodies, let's just leave it there with humans, in many analogous situations, right? So, and we call that thing fear. Is that, is, do you find that not satisfactory to say, yeah, more, more often than not, you can be in Taiwan, you could be in Papua New Guinea, you could be in Madagascar, you could be in, you know, wherever around the world. And if an animal is rushing at you, you're going to have a similar internal subjective experience of what's going on. And we just heuristically, we call that fear. Would you disagree with that? Or, or is it just a totally different framing of, of how you see it? 
I think anything is possible. <laughs> Uh, but I'm a scientist, so I'm not an armchair philosopher mm-hmm. uh, or an armchair neuroscientist or an armchair anything. Mm-hmm. I I want to I want to know what the evidence is. You know, I didn't start my career thinking I'm going to shake things up and disagree with every single person <laughs> who I've ever read. No, I actually thought that that there were. I mean, I started my whole career thinking mm-hmm. that. There were objective expressions, uh, you know, that were universal and so on and so forth. So you can imagine my surprise mm-hmm. uh, when not only did I not find them, but, um, you know, the hypotheses are not, they don't, like people are cited for saying things that they actually didn't say. Mm-hmm. You know, like William James never said that there's one mm-hmm physiological pattern for anger. In fact, he said the exact opposite. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So <laughs> I guess what I would say is, sure, it's conceivable. And if somebody shows me the evidence that this is the case, mm. I probably will believe it. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but because I'm very data driven, but here's what I see, I, not, not only in my own data, but in other people's data too. You don't have one process for fear. You have a bunch of processes for fear. Mm. There are a bunch of things that look that, that, that a, your body doesn't do one thing in fear. It does many things in fear. Mm. It doesn't make one, you don't make one facial expression in fear. You make many facial expressions in fear. Mm-hmm. It's not random. It's structured. It's mm. structured by the situation mm. and by the context that you're in. So that's part of what makes fear, fear, an instance of fear. Um, you know, when, uh, when an, an animal, like when an animal rushes you, you say, that's a, that's a, you need much more context there. Mm-hmm. So when an animal rushes you, um, you might feel something other than fear. Sure. And there's a whole lot of context you're leaving out, sure, sure. Uh, I think. And so, um, you know, in fear, for example, do you fall asleep in fear? I don't fall asleep in fear. But there, are, there is a culture where people fall asleep in fear. Mm. And that seems really weird to us because we don't think about fainting in fear or falling asleep in fear. But it turns out that actually animals in the ocean mm. um, slow their heart rates in, you know, in the face of a predator because, especially if that predator is a shark. <laughs> because, so, they, so there are some animals that do fall asleep in fear, but that's not part of our stereotype of fear in the West. And so we don't even think of that as Mm. being um, an example of fear. And as a consequence, when we hear that people in Bali fall asleep in fear, we think, oh, that's really, that can't be true. Um, So I guess my point is that um, I think it's great to have hypotheses and you can have hypotheses that there's something universal that all people have and that everyone around the world would feel. It's totally fine to have that hypothesis. In fact, I encourage it. But what you have to do is design experiments that try to prove yourself wrong. Mm. And if your experiments are designed in such a way that there's no conceivable way that you could find that you're wrong mm. because you've sampled in a, in, a, in a particular way or you've constrained the way that you've run your experiment, then you're not doing science. Mm. Mm. And so that, my beef is not, if I have a beef at all, it's not with a particular view. It's with... Um, um, it's with the idea that um, that all views are equally valid, mm. um, 
in the face of evidence. Like the evidence just doesn't support what you just, that, that little scenario that mm-hmm. you gave, the evidence that, that I know of doesn't support, there's no evidence that supports what you just said. Mm. And that doesn't mean that there couldn't be evidence, but uh, so far in 150 years, people haven't produced it mm. and they've tried mm. and they've tried in ways that really limit that, that really, I wouldn't even call them like strong tests of that hypothesis. They're almost like confirm, they attempt to confirm it rather than disconfirm it. And yet they can't. Mm. So, but is it, is it feasible? Sure. It's absolutely feasible. I mean, it makes a lot of sense that there would be some things that are universal, particularly to have to do with our survival. It's just that every study, when you look at all the studies together, what you see, what I see is that it's more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I certainly agree with you. I think that, yes, I mean, we should be data-driven and make good hypotheses and run good experiments. And I, I certainly agree that it is very, you know, multivariate and, and very complicated. I guess the, the last question I have is, is a kind of a compound question is, if, if in, in your model, if, if it's very, uh, if it's varied and it is complicated, how do we have a kind of mm, a theory of mind where we're able to have some type of empathy for people? If, if I don't know your experience of a situation or a context is going to be different than another person's. And there's not really a lot of overlap there. How, how interpersonally or relationally can I have a kind of either cognitive empathy or an emotional empathy, if you will? Um, and, and what does that mean, I guess, in terms of, you know, treatment, right? So, so how, do we, how do we encourage or spur people on to having you know, good affect regulation and good you know, emotional regulation, all these things that, you know, clinicians use for so long. You know, if, if in this model is kind of, you know, theoretically and, and, and scientifically, you know, shaking things up and saying, well, I think we've been getting this maybe conceptually wrong and there's good data behind it. Okay. Where do you see things, I guess, practically just on a relational and a personal level and maybe on a clinical level of, of, of how, how we can use that? Well, I think those, you've asked me like three or four different questions. <laughs> yeah, there's a compounded question. One question. Yeah. So, you know, um, first of all, I would say, you know, y- you don't have one experience of anger. You have many experiences of anger. So when you encounter pe- different people in different situations, you know, it's not like you, like you have, you have experiences that are structured but yet variable Mm. and so it's not impossible to imagine that that you'd be able to use those in interactions with other people Mm. so you and i for example um well let me let me say it differently have you ever had mind blindness where you're interacting with someone and you just don't know you just can't guess you can't read them you know you can't you have a hard time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and do they have it, does it happen usually that they're from the same culture as you or from a different culture? Probably varied. I could probably think of examples of maybe the same, maybe different cultures. Yeah. Yeah. If I think about well, it. Well, yeah. I'll tell you how it is for me, how it is for me. And I have, a, I have many people I interact with from other cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, you know, our lab has been to, you know, re- re- really remote cultures, mm-hmm. um, uh, which are very, very different from from our Western culture. But yeah. what I would say is the following that 
whether I'm empathic or not is an open question, but my confidence <laughs> is much higher <laughs> when I'm interacting with somebody who is similar to me. Uh-huh. Now, you and I, you might say, okay, well, we're not that similar, but we are actually pretty similar, you and I. Yeah. I mean, I'm from Canada originally. Uh-huh. Where are you from? Are you from the States? I'm from the United States, yeah, just outside D.C. Okay, yeah. But, you know, we're we so we're from the same part of the world, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, we speak the same language. We, you know, we have a, we're, we're both trained in particular ways. We have had a common set of experiences. We probably read things that are similar. So mm-hmm. you and I are pretty similar. Yeah. We're not exactly the same. Obviously, you know, you, you, you know, I, I can't even say like, you're a man and I'm a woman. We're not allowed to use language in that <laughs> way anymore, but you know what I mean? Like we're okay. So we're not identical, but, but we're, but we're pretty similar. Yeah. So uh, you may not have had exactly the experiences that I've had and vice versa. But we do have this capacity, every human brain has this capacity called conceptual combination, which just means you can take bits and pieces of your experience and put them together in novel ways so that you can experience something you've never experienced Mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. Um, Experiential blindness, like what I called mind blindness, that's where you really can't, like you, it's not, you you can't put things together in a way that, that allows you to make any sense of um, what you're what, what you're faced with. So you don't see objects, you don't hear sounds, you know, it's just like all noise to you. Mm-hmm. Um, the moments where I've been, had, had mind blindness, where I just couldn't figure out like what, you know, was going on with that person. They tend to happen when the culture is very, very different. And me being mindful of cultural variation that is real. Um, I prefer to presume not to um, assume that I know, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. So the research suggests, I think, that for better or for worse, you know, Paul Bloom would say it's for worse, that we tend to have better empathy for people who are like us, who are similar yeah. to us in mm-hmm. some way. And that similarity doesn't have to be physical similarity. It, it has to be, you know, it's more cultural similarity or psychological similarity. Does that mean that we um, um, are always terrifically um, empathic to others who are like us? No. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I I think for the most part, people are not very empathic. I I don't mean that people are harsh. I mean that Mm -hmm. people don't check. (laughs) They go with what they expect their their own feelings tell them without really checking. I agree. Actually. And for the most part, unless you're married to someone or you're a caregiver for someone, you can get by with reasonable, like, just like empathy and it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's no cost to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, but what I, I guess, so that, that would be the answer to the question of, you know, conceptual, like the, uh, you know, can you be empathic with someone who, you know, how can you have empathy if everyone is different? Mm-hmm. And I guess the answer I would say is, well, you're different from day to day. I mean, your experience varies yeah. and your brain has this capacity to add new um, experiences by combining bits and pieces of the past in novel ways. So your, your brain is a novelty generator to some extent. And that's partially how you know, we get by mm. um, in attempting to interact with people who are very different from us. Mm. But I think the um, the the main um, answer to the question of like what does this mean about treatment and so on 
I think depends on who you are. Mm. Are you the patient or are you the clinician? Mm. Like if you're the clinician, I would say, here's what it tells you. It tells you that you should be humble and you should be curious Mm. and you should never presume ever presume that. I mean, you personally, as a clinician, I would never presume um, to know what somebody else is thinking or feeling. Mm-hmm. Like when I went to graduate school, I was trained as a clinician. Okay. Mm. And one of the things that we were trained to do was to use our clinical intuition, um, which by the way, research suggests is a very bad idea. I mean, like, I don't think that's changed. Uh, I, I, you know, like the, the, there are ways to improve clinical practice, but one of them is not like to go with your intuition. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the things I found really problematic in my training, and I was, I, I mean, I think I had great training and I, I think the university I went to, the program, I'm not complaining about them or criticizing them. I just think it's endemic in the field. This idea that as clinicians, that we somehow have a window into somebody else's experience that's better than theirs, or that somehow we're an authority on their experience Mm -hmm. that they aren't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The reality is that when you face a client and you have experience, you're experiencing them differently than they're experiencing themselves. Mm -hmm. It's not that one of you is right and the other is wrong. It's that that relational, the meaning in the relational, the relational realism of that situation is that there are two people experiencing things differently. Mm. And so as a clinician, what it tells me is that I should be more humble and more curious Mm. Mm. and not assert the authority of my experience as being more objective. Mm -hmm. I think that's super disrespectful. Mm. And I I have been on the end of that actually as the patient. And I think it's really, it just irritates me because it's just, it's just presumptuous. I think Mm -hmm. Um, as the, as the patient or the client, I would say, and I do say, you know, you have more control over what you experience mm-hmm. than you think you do. Mm-hmm. You, you don't have perfect control. Like nobody has as much control as they would like to have. Maybe I'm just saying that because I'm a control freak, but <laughs> nobody would like to, you know, nobody has as much. Getting control looks different than what you, than what you think it might look like, mm-hmm. you know, trying to inhibit a urge to do something. That's not what I'm talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's harder to do than, than you might want. Some people have more options than others do. So, right. But everybody has more control over what they experience than they think they do. And that means they also have more responsibility for what they experience Mm. and how they act Mm. than they might like. Mm. And, you know, one of the things I said in my TED talk, which is, I think, really important is that, you know, when, when something bad happens to you, bad things happen to people and it's not their fault. Mm. Um, but there's a difference between culpability and responsibility. Something bad can happen to me and, but, and I might experience distress, uh, you know, really even an illness because of it, but who is going to fix that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes when something bad happens to you, the only person who can fix the shit that Mm -hmm. result Mm -hmm. is you Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's unfair Mm -hmm. and it is unfair Mm -hmm. but it's also how things are Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and 
you know, I'm not saying that you can just like talk yourself out of being depressed or whatever, right. but um, I'm, I would never say that, but, but you do have more control uh, over your experience and therefore over your actions that, than you might think. Mm-hmm. And this way of understanding experience helps you see where you can get more traction over control. Mm. I mean, that's partly what how emotions are made is doing Mm. Um, and, and all the podcasts and the writing and so on that I've done since then. It's a very optimistic view. Um, You can't have everything the way that you might want it to be, but, but you can be more of an architect of your experience than you, Mm. than you might think. Um, because very, very few things are obligatory. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree with everything you're saying. And, and as much of what I say to my, to my, uh, in my clinical practice as well is giving more agency and power with the client and less of, I'm going to tell you everything about emotions or I'm going to tell you everything about what you should do. I don't know. I'm not your, I don't have your experience. And I fully agree that on the clinician side, people should be more open, uh, very, very humble and trying to you know, foster the relationship to try and help the person. Um, Lisa, what, what can I say? This was, this was so much fun. I, I, I greatly, greatly appreciate you taking your time and energy, explaining all of these very, very important things. Uh, really was a big honor and privilege to have you come on. Um, and so I, I, big, 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 big thanks from, from my end for oh, doing it. My pleasure. It's absolutely fantastic to talk with you. I can't remember actually the last time I talked with someone who mentioned Hegel and Kant. So I'm like very, uh, you know, uh, that was tremendously enjoyable. So thank you so much. 